Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A Scottish football podcast that isn't obsessed with just two teams. Niche nonsense. Or surprisingly brilliant. You decide. The Terrace Scottish Football Podcast. The cult Scottish Football Podcast now adapted into a hit TV show. Search the Terrace Scottish Football Podcast on your chosen podcast player now. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Rothman back in the chair. And this week's guest is, first and foremost, a City fan, a former Manchester City captain, someone who was often described as a future England captain. He was inducted into the Manchester City Hall of Fame. He's even been an answer on the TV show Mastermind. But for me, he is one of the most naturally talented and gifted footballers I've ever, ever had the pleasure to watch. It's a very warm welcome to the Man City Show to Paul Lake. Um, thanks for the invite. It's a real, real pleasure to be speaking to you. Right, great to have you, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, can we start? Actually, normally I start with, you know, youth football into the city academy, into the reserves, etc. I actually want to start in a different position with you, if I may, because I know you're currently working for the Premier League on uh, Project Restart. Do you, do you want to just sort of fill us in a little bit because you, you're obviously working there? Be really interested to hear your view as to exactly where we are with the whole sort of restart program. Well, yeah, there's been a it's been a huge piece of work which um, has been undertaken by the Premier League, um, and um, it, the risk assessment has been uh, so detailed, and, and well, it, it, it has to be um, to ensure that the game can come back, and, and there's no further risk or as very little risk as is humanly possible for the players. Um, they've taken obviously a look over the shoulders in, into the Bundesliga and seeing uh, how that's been uh, progressed and the successes and the challenges they've had. And the Premier League have worked um, with um, you know, esteemed uh, medical advisors uh, to progress from a stage one uh, where the, uh, the players were able to train in small groups, uh, socially distanced, um, through to now where we're at stage two, 
and if things go according to plan in towards stage three, which will be competitive matches. And uh, you wouldn't believe the amount of detail that they've had to go into to ensure that no stone is left unturned. So any any chance of any exposure uh, to a potential uh, transmission of any, any kind uh, has to be mitigated. And so as a consequence, one of my roles um, is to be an assurance officer in the Premier League. We've got uh, an, an audit team going in as well to clubs on a regular basis that the players get tested twice a week um, alongside the temperature and uh, any issues are obviously addressed immediately um, with the, the the appropriate responses. But um, it's been a, a, an incredibly complicated piece of work and, and now that's going to be moved in towards the stadium Um challenges which that will bring something new um, in terms of the different areas that, that the different people are allowed to go into some will be able to go pitch side some stadium only and some just the car park so um, the, the numbers that are involved and the amount of testing and the the speed of the testing the type of testing then the areas where there could be potential risks so the risk assessment has gone into every possible scenario in every room every bathroom every potential shower area which will probably be coming up sooner rather than later I mean I think on and on but suffice it to say that it's been a, an incredibly difficult um, thing to uh, move forward but I think that the Premier League have, have done a particularly good job in this regard uh, and what's your actual role? Just help us understand a little bit more about what, what it is that Paul Lake is doing. I mean, you've described a very complex, very detailed, very thorough process, clearly. What, what's your actual role, Paul? Help us understand a bit more about well, my, that. My role is everyone at the moment is mucking in, as the, as the saying goes. I mean, obviously, this is unprecedented time. So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's the huge stumbling block to try and get the game back just some kind of normality and so we're all to to, uh, to roll our sleeves up. But my, my role normally as I'm a club support manager, I work with five academies, uh, Manchester City, uh, Everton, Burnley, Sheffield United, Aston Villa and my clubs. And I'm the liaison between the Premier League and the academies. I support the players, support the staff. We provide all manner of educational opportunities for all the staff alongside supporting the players' education support, which is um, in place on a on a, a weekly basis. And um, it's all about dual aspiration and ensuring that the boys have got the opportunity to have a, a very thorough um, look at, uh, at what they can achieve from an educational standpoint alongside a footballing standpoint, because as I'm sure you're aware, it's so difficult to get into teams, into first teams these days. You know, the percentage of the homegrown players making it is... Is, is so small because the challenges are, you know, are huge and you have to be so, so talented to get right to the top. So we make sure that the boys have got um, a different opportunity, not just a plan B, but a plan C, D, E and F so that every boy's got the opportunity to have you know, a fulfilling start to a new, uh, a new point in their career if it's not going to be as a professional footballer. Can I just press you, sort of play devil's advocate one more time before we move on to the kind of the Paul Lake story? And and there will be a school of thought, and there'll be a number of people, Paul, who say actually, you know, there are far more important things than football, and it's a matter of life and death, literally. And the women's game that that's ended, the lower leagues have ended. Um, you know, football without crowds is really not football, and therefore, actually, a line should have been drawn under this season and sort of starting it, and we should just start again when it's safe to do so and properly. There are a lot of people who feel that. What's your response to people when they put that to you, Lakey? 
Well, I, I, I can totally appreciate their, their standpoint, and it's an opinion that everyone is entitled to. And, and um, you know, we, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the Premier League. I mean, from a personal perspective, I, I, I feel the same that, you know, in, in these current times, you know, sports or anything along those lines, you know, takes a, you know, a, a back a back step um, in terms of people's livelihoods and 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 their and you know in terms of actual life and death scenario it, it doesn't pales into insignificance. However, um, there is um, a huge um, huge implications around the workforces of the people of the uh, of the clubs, not just obviously the staff there, but the wider staff. Um, so obviously the, the the sport itself is a is a huge um, a turnover of staff, match day staff, um, you know, staff working on a full time basis, on a part time basis, on a casual basis, on a, you know, um, as uh, as as anyone would imagine it in terms of if the the, the workplace doesn't return to some kind of uh, regularity soon then the ramifications uh, are going to be drastic and, and, and sport is no difference. And, 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 and at the same time, you have got the financial implications of, of the lower league clubs and, and the money will disseminate from the Premier League down into the football league clubs. And without that money, then one or two clubs may even go to the wire and actually fold. So I, I believe that, you know, in the scheme of things, um, there's, there's a huge responsibility to try and get the game back and also for people's mental health they've got you know different challenges and, and for lots of people you know football is a huge part of their lives and, and to be able to give them some something to look forward to uh, during these bleak times you know it may be, may be seen as, as, a, as a positive but as I say when it comes to, to people's livelihoods and, and life and death, then I'm I'm a, I'm the belief that, that the football doesn't even come into the equation. But we have to try and make a start somewhere, and this is a point towards the new normal, which is going to be something for us all to address. Sure. <clears throat> Let's go back to your uh, early days then, as, as a city fan. So I mean, it's great to have a, a city captain who was a city fan, and and you wore that sky blue shirt with, with great pride. I know. Uh, your first game, am I right? So the, the mid seventies, seventy five, was that your first game? Do you remember which game it was? Yeah, I, I went to um, to watch. Um, it was City were playing. It was I think it was nineteen seventy four, and right. um, the the game itself was was it was a one nil result. And the, the opposition now, as you as you mentioned, it just has suddenly escaped my mind. But Rodney Marsh scored the only goal. And um, it was a really, really uh, uh, fascinating game for me because I was so new to it all. It was just like this whole new world that had opened up to me. You know, when you walk through the turnstiles, but even on the way to the ground, you know, just seeing um, the different people, you know, with the, all the city fans and, and the hubbub of, of the noise and the singing and the smells and the crowd and just all those things combined was such a novelty. It was so, so exciting. And then to queue up to get into the stadium and then actually going into the stadium, with it being a night game, my first game as well, it was, um, you know, the floodlights and oh, it was just absolutely amazing. And I was enthralled by the occasion and looking around at people, looking over at the the, um, at the, the sort of um, the, the chairman's area and obviously as the players came out onto the pitch well wow, that was just one of the most special things and clapping and cheering and getting excited and 
you know, like just just everything. It was just a, the, an, an event that for me as a, as a youngster, my eyes practically popped out of my head and it was just the most uh, exciting experience. And um, I was taken by uh, our one of our, uh, near where I lived, there's a farm and the Milkman's a city fan had two, two season tickets and he, he used to invite myself and my brother to come to games and we'd take it, you know, alternate games. So that was my first introduction. But um, we did get invited to go over to United, but really there was only one team for us and it was going to be the blue um, side of Manchester. And who were your kind of heroes at the time, Lakey? Who were the, who were the stars that you looked up to and thought, I, w- I want to be Rodney Marsh or Colin Bell or who, who was it? Yeah, well, um, in, initially, in, in, uh, I was. Uh, it was Colin Bell was 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 one of my heroes because he was just um, um, he was one of those players that was uh, was just um, omnipotent, wasn't he? Seemed to be absolutely everywhere on the pitch, and you know, almost ran the game. But I just loved his manner. He was. He seemed to be very humble. to shook hands if he scored a goal or created something. He didn't go, you know, crazy. Managed his emotions. He was just so stylish to watch, and then. Peter Barnes, when he came on the scene with his skill and the way he just jinked past people and his wonderful left foot. And then, and also Dennis Stewart. I used to love how Dennis dressed, you know, in terms of his match day appearance. He always looked immaculate. And even his tie-ups were just perfect. And everything about him was just so cool. So I had, you know, favourites at different times, but uh, certainly those three players were the players that stood out for me. And so then, kind of, how did your actual career start then? So here you are, City fans, sort of going with the, with the, with the milkman from the local farm. It's a great story. Uh, and then suddenly you find yourself kind of a scout wants you and you start signing forms and, and you're suddenly part of the setup. That must have been amazing for a City fan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I was I was playing for my local um, town team, and and um, it was um, it was Denton Boys in place in Thameside um, in uh, Greater Manchester. And um, we were playing against Manchester boys, and uh, a left-footed winger called uh, at the time, and he was a winger at the time, was uh, Andy Hinchcliffe, and he and I played against each other, and um, it's always great to win, and we won one nil in that game. But after the game, the it was a City scout, Ted Davies, had approached my dad, and my dad told me that look, this 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 chap's given me his number and his details, and uh, he wants you to come down to training. I said, who is it? You know, and he said. Um, it's um, this guy from Manchester City. What should I tell him? And I said, Dad, just tell him yes. Just tell him yes. <laughs> so that was the start for me. And um, it was a huge um, commitment because obviously we weren't a particularly wealthy family and even getting to games would mean that sometimes I'd have to, well, quite often, I'd have to get a lift from somebody else because my dad used to work at weekends um, because it was five of us, you know, a family of seven altogether. So there was a lot of responsibility on my dad's shoulders. So... He couldn't uh, always, in fact, he could hardly get to games. So really, I was often going by myself and, you know, in this new world of football. But even though I was a particularly shy lad, uh, I liked to do my talking on the pitch. And uh, I soon found that uh, I could fit in, I could hold my own. And I know that there was one season where, when you got into the first team, where you literally played in every single outfield position. I think it's it's a well-known fact that you literally played everywhere. As, as a youngster in those days, were were you a midfielder? Is that is that your natural position, or were you a centre back? What did what did you start at in those days as a youngster? As a youngster, I was the same as um, well Andy Hinscliffe, Steve Redmond, all these guys were centre forwards, and I was a centre forward. And when we first started in the U team, I was a centre forward alongside um, Paul Molden. 
and Paul would score the goals and I would have a you know a bag full of assists. I used to score one or two myself, but that was where I started off. And then um, as time progressed, I, I was I was just tried out in different positions. If somebody was injured or if someone was ill or whatever, you know, I would say, "Oh, just at Lakey there." And you know, it was kind of it was it was flattering that the thought that I could do a job in different positions. And um, but I, I just thought of it as well. You know, I can either soak and say I don't want to play there, and I've come here as this particular player in this position, or I can I can advance my my awareness on the pitch. So I was playing left side, I was playing right side, I was playing full back one minute, I was playing left wing the, the next, I was playing up top the centre forward, and then I was playing centre half. And I suppose it was a bit like the Vincent Company when he first came to City, when he was sort of seen as a more of a midfield player uh, with Nigel de Jong. And then eventually he found his position in um, at centre back. I, I suppose I would have followed that that progression in which I did do when I eventually was put to centre half by uh, Howard Kendall. Mm. That, that youth team, the, 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 what a fantastic team that was! The team of what eighty six. I think six players played regularly for the City first team, and others had the odd games as well. That's a very very high percentage. Should should that have been our class of eighty six, Lakey? Potentially, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there was there was a few good players, you know, before we came through. The likes of uh, you know John Beresford and um, Jamie Hoylander or Barrett, Darren Beckford. These players were before, but then um, obviously at that time, yeah, we had so many good players, and and it was the fact that we were such a, a talented group that we kind of you know pushed each other on. There was a, a standard that was set by the by Tony Buck and Glenn Pardo through the uh, the guys in the support of. Um, Ken Barnes as well, obviously, as I'm sure you're aware, sadly, we've lost Ken now and we've lost Glenn Pardo, and that was sure. really upsetting uh, for all of the lads, and, and um, he, has, he has a place in all of our hearts for the way that he helped and supported us. But certainly at that time, the players um, were, were very, very competitive, so every single training session was really, really intense. There was no just turn up and just go through the emotions. That was there wasn't it wasn't allowed. But we'd set the standards. Tony Book supported us in that regard, especially because he was more the taskmaster. He was the bad cop. But um, but certainly um, the level that that we trained at and played at was was uh, was very very high. I mean, in the 18, we only lost one game uh, all season. We won the reserve league with something like four or five games to go. You know, when and it was just um, driven all the time. You know, wanting more and being exposed to men's football at an early age. I think that helped all of us. And um, I, it was ironic that I was the last of the group of players to actually make it into the first team. And although that was a frustration for me, I, I wasn't jealous. I was I was envious, but I was really proud that all my mates had made it into the first team, and I wanted to be where they were. So, you know, that also gave me, um, you know, a push and some motivation to get me into the right direction. And, and how did that debut come about, Lakey, then? Just, just I'm always fascinated to know how, how you get the news and how many hours or days before the actual game you know, you know about it so you can get yourself wound up and prepared properly. Well, you you often ask to go and train if if someone's injured or someone's ill, you know, and they're missing a right back or midfield player, whatever position it was. It'd say, look, can you just go over there and join him with the first team? So, you know, when that, when that first happens, it's quite daunting and it is quite a you know uh, one of those gulp moments where you have to steal yourself and 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 be able to deal with the situation. 
Um, and then once you get used to that, it's more a case of training, you know, on a more regular basis for the first thing. It was one Friday morning, you know, just training as normal. And as training finished, um, I think it was um, Jimmy Frizzell said, um, you know, you've got uh, you've got an interview to do because um, you're, um, you're playing tomorrow. And it was literally like that. So that was the preparation. So, you know, at the same time, because you, you do get told that, listen, you know, you're going to be traveling to Wimbledon. So um, you want to make sure they bring their kit just in case. But you're not get actually told. So you might just drive home again with your suit in, your, in, in the boot of your car and, and it doesn't happen. But that's what, how it happened for me. And um, yeah, I was uh, I was travelling down, and uh, I played on the on the Saturday at uh, the luxurious Palais. Uh, and uh, it's a sp- holds a special place in my heart because it was my birthday, Lakey. My birthday, nineteen eighty seven, is when you made your debut, twenty fourth of January. So uh, so there you go. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and clearly, listen, you, you you were a truly gifted footballer. I've, I've made that point already. Did, did you? realize how good you were at the time when you were playing here you were playing in manchester city's first team you were being talked about as a future england captain you know we know that i'm moving on a little bit here but i know that sir bobby robson he had you in you what in his 30 for the 1990 world cup you know what was that like and how did that feel as, 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 a, as a local lad Playing for your local club, suddenly you were you you were there as a, as one of the superstars in 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 that city team. How did that feel? Well, I suppose at the time you, you don't really kind of see it in in exactly those terms, and it's only when you reflect and and people say these things to you that you think, oh, oh, right, that is that is that, is that me? Because you don't you don't um, because there's, there's that much going on. There's obviously training every day and the games, and you do get nice pieces in the papers, and the evening news can be positive and negative, as was Peter Gardner's want. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you um, you, you don't Tony Bond Glenpardo rise of the mindset where you don't don't get bigger than your boots because you know it's there's still a long way to go and this is the start of your career so obviously once I'd uh, managed to break into the um, the the 21s with England and and then that's when you're on a different stage and you're playing alongside very good players and you think to yourself well how do I deal with this how do I cope with it do I am I I good enough and and once you realize that actually you can hold your own and in some cases you can more than hold your own and you think, oh, right, OK, what's the next challenge for me? And I just felt, at the time of my knee injury, I was so confident. I felt like I could play anywhere. I could have stepped up into England first, and I felt I was that confident that I was, you know, I mean, I was gutted to not make it into the World Cup um, 22 to go to um, Italy. Uh, I felt I was good enough to be in that team. Um, and then the England manager, uh, rest his soul, had said to uh, Howard Kendall, Again, he sadly passed away as well, Howard. But um, he had me in mind as a potential or future England captain, so that's where it came from. So, although I was I was gutted I didn't make it into the squad, I came back that pre-season, you know, um, uh, feeling uh, ten foot tall and 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 realizing that this is my this is my moment, this is going to be my season, or or so I thought. And uh, how wrong can you be? And, and it was then that I think it was Howard Kendall who sat down with you. And, and if I'm, I'm right, I think he gave you, offered you a five-year contract. I know many other top clubs were after you, but he, he said he was going to make you the highest ever paid City player and, and offered you a five-year contract just a, a few games before yeah. the tragic injury that we're going to come on to. So, so just give us a bit of insight into that meeting, how that came about and, and, and what he said to you. 
Well, Howard has basically pulled me and said, look, you need to have a chat, you and I. Um, and, and, um, and I didn't have an agent at the time, Club, so I didn't really know what were the whispers other than things that get, you know, put in the, um, in the, uh, the tabloids and the, and the broadsheets. And it was, it was kind of being linked to one of one or two names I mentioned, but it was Howard who told me that, um, that um, Sir Alex was interested. And then so were Arsenal, Liverpool, Glasgow Rangers at the time were doing particularly well. And they were, you know, I said Gascoigne and Butcher and all these guys. And so I had quite a, a host of clubs that were, that were looking to sign, sign me and, um, and David Pleat even put in the papers that he would have paid a million pounds then, and that would have been the equivalent to whatever that is today, but that was in 1988. So, you know, these are the kind of things that were being, being spoken of, uh, of my potential. So um, I suppose when you sort of, when you read it and you see it in those terms, you kind of, you know, realise that, you know, that I'm, I'm decent. And, um, and I was always kind of being touted as being of the group, probably the, the shining light of the group. But I also felt that it was great because I, I learned from my teammates. I learned from Whitey. I learned from Andy Hinge. I learned from Nettle. I learned from Bob Brightwell, Ian Scott, Paul Molden. So they helped me. We all helped each other. And it was that the standards that were set. When, and that's the reason why I felt I had so much more to come. And, and so that was another reason why I, was, I couldn't wait for the start of the, the following season. And what was it that Howard Kendall said to himself then in that interview, in that discussion? He, he just said, look, he said, we don't want to lose you. Um, Peter, um, Peter Squales, um, and I have had the conversation and, um, yeah, we could, we could sign you, we could make some money on you, but we see you as being a stalwart for City for the next five, ten years. We don't want to be losing our best players. We're, we're, we're a big club and we've got, um, we've got plans to... Um, um, to, uh, to 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 progress into the league and to and to really challenge for a potential top four place, and we need you in the thick of it. And on the back of that, I'm prepared to offer you a five-year deal. He said, "But so give me ten games as captain, and I'll give you. I'll make sure that you have the best contract that this club's ever seen." And because all I wanted to do was play and play for City, I was like, "Yeah, where do I sign?" You know, it was it was that because I did, I backed myself. I thought, "Well, yeah, I'll I'll give you ten games and more besides." And then, you know, who knows where it will take me. But, but sadly, that was, as we all know, was, was, uh, was short-lived. Well, well, let's bring us on to that. If I set the scene, Blakey, then you can fill in the rest for us. It was, uh, I think they'd have five summer rock concerts on the pitch. Uh, it was a wet, a wet, wet pitch midweek against Aston Villa. Was it, what, two uh-huh. and a half games after that conversation? And uh, mm-hmm. take, take us on from there, if you can, Paul. Well, before the game started, uh, Howard Kendall actually gave me a nudge as I was about to walk out. He said, by the way, the England manager, the new England manager is here to watch you, Tony Daly and David Platt. Um, and obviously, he'd seen David Platt and David Platt had a fantastic World Cup. But myself and Tony Daly weren't involved, but he'd come to watch us specifically. So that gave me another, you know, edge, as if I needed one. And, and um, so I was... Um, I was just say uh, I was just so so confident and enjoying how I was playing. I was playing particularly well. Um, you know, we hadn't uh, we hadn't been rocked by them at all. Really, it was uh, it was a game that I felt we were we were in, we were in charge of. And then it was the second half. I'd just been an absolute. I'd been an amazing. I'd beaten three or four players and put the ball through Derek Mountfield's legs, legs and I'd left the palm of ground on the floor. But I just knocked it a, t- a, a touch too far and it had um, gone through. And the keeper had come out and collected it. And then within five minutes, a ball got played up to Tony Cascarino. 
he he miscontrolled it. It bounced off of his chest and went up into the air, into the side of his shoulder. I just poked it away to Mark Brennan as I landed. My foot fixed in the turf. I rotated to follow the play. My foot stayed where it was, and I heard this um, unbelievable crack in the middle of my knee, and I thought I fractured something. Um, and the pain came. The pain was was ridiculous for about you know sort of five minutes, and then the pain seemed to dissipate. And um, I was stretched off. Uh, I was left in the changing room with a bag of ice on my knee by myself for the end of the game. And it was a case of, well, I'll just get your knee checked out tomorrow and we'll see where we go. Um, I had my knee checked out by a consultant who just told me that I'd, uh, I'd just uh, tweak the ligament and I should be okay to carry on, but just give it some time to build your muscles up. Um, and I learned later that from um, the physios at Lillishaw National Sports Centre that um, not only had I had ruptured my ACL, but I, I damaged my medial collateral ligament and I uh, damaged my meniscus, my cartilage as well. And that's known as the unlucky triad. Um, and ironically, I was, it was just left, my medial ligament was, 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 was repaired. And that was, that was done a few years before that. And I got stamped on by a guy called McKennedy at Bradford City. So there was things that needed to be done that weren't done. And um, as I say, I was, I was left in limbo. I was left, um, you know, literally with a, a bag of ice around my knee thinking, well, I'll take, put my trust and faith in the, in the medical staff around me and, uh, and I should be okay. So that was the beginning of the end, but little did I know it. Uh, and it's interesting, I mean, just sort of going back to that night, of course, that the actions that City took and your injury actually changed a number of things, of course, because Dr. Luft, I think, was sat next to the chairman in the director's box and he ran down. And Roy Bailey, of course, who's the physio at the time, had to carry on his duties. And that's why you were kind of left there. But I think things have changed as a result. I think it now, now it's kind of common practice or I think it's the law now isn't it they have to have a doctor kind of on the bench with the physical team that's right um, uh, that's right for, 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 and that kind of came I think pretty much from your injury didn't it Paul yeah it is I mean <clears throat> if you, you think about it I mean to be fair to the physio at the time Roy, Roy Bailey he was in charge of literally um, the first team the the reserve squad if you will and and all of the, uh, the scholars all the um, 17 18 year olds and he'd also be asked to have a look at schoolboys that were coming now and again as well. So the, it, it was it was ridiculous, really, the amount of, mm-hmm. of people that of players had yet to oversee, and the fact that you know the, the the qualifications that he had were 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 far below the standard you would wish your son or indeed your daughter these days to be exposed to. Can we talk about that that period then? Then. Lakey, because obviously uh, it was a difficult time for you. Um, you had uh, some treatments. Looking back on it now, clearly it wasn't good enough. And I think it's fair to say that City didn't handle it particularly well. Uh, I'm just keen to get, again, a bit of insight from you about that whole period and, and how how A City handled it all. And, of course, the impact it had on you personally. Yeah, well... Um... As you can appreciate, anyone that is listening to this, and obviously we're, we're all a, a lot older and wiser, but as a, as a young man or a young person, um, you're, you've got a life experience which is it's, it's quite quite stunted, it's quite short, and it's quite narrow focus that you have, and, and your life experience is quite narrow. So you don't have a, a lot to, to kind of reflect upon in terms of, well, 
with this in mind, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. You're, you're guided by people and you put your trust and your faith in people. And it got to the stage where I was actually away from the club for two weeks and I'd come back to the to the club for a week. And my two weeks away were at Lillishaw National Sports Centre where I had fantastic care. And I'd come back to the club and I'd be I'd be uh, I'd put a bit of ice on my knee and they'd have a look at it and and so it's going really well. And then I'd just go to the gym by myself. And uh, then I'd come back, um, maybe have some more ice on my knee and and um, barely a question about even what I'd been doing that morning. And then see you tomorrow. Now, I understand that, obviously, I'm of no use to the club at that particular time because I'm injured and they've got bigger fish to fire players to get fit for the weekends and other things to consider. But when, you, when you've given your, your all to your football club and it's all that you know, you have a lot of fears, a lot of worries, a lot of anxieties and also a lot of identity. And that's slowly being peeled away, you know, um, day by day. And... The psychological torment that you go through when you're an injured footballer uh, in that situation, not knowing what the end game is going to be, the outcomes are going to be, um, is, 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 is difficult to manage and you ruminate. And so it becomes a 24-7 thinking, oh, you, the first thing you do when you wake up is, how's my knee this morning? Can I straighten my leg? Is it quite swollen? Have I done too much? Have I not done enough? Um, where do I need to strengthen? You know, let's hope we won't go next time. What do I need to do? And they didn't have the intelligence, the knowledge to to answer these questions. So I used to just um, bite my lip, then go back to Lillyshaw and and get the answers to the questions that I needed to. But the the most harrowing times were at weekends. You used to dread weekends because you'd have to go and show your face at games. And obviously, as a City fan, first and foremost, you you want the team to do well. But also, you realise someone's wearing your shirt and they shouldn't even be in your shirt, as far as you can see. And and then slowly you start to be forgotten, even even in those terms, where you just you find that you you become you even the way you become an inconvenience. So you go from being invited to games to um, oh, can you do the uh, the lottery draw at um, in the far suite at um, half past four? And that's the sum total of your your uh, your presence there, and and um, you just feel forgotten. So it was a combination of the treatment. It was a combination of how you do it, dealt with and supported. But I do feel that the majority of the reasons why that happened was just ignorance because you just didn't know any better because the standards were so poor in terms of how to support players. And it's all right to say, oh, it was of a time. And for some clubs, you could say it was of a time. But I can assure you that if I had been Manchester United at that time under a physiotherapist called Gay Fever, who's since worked at Blackburn Rovers, he's worked with the Wigan Rugby League. But if I'd have had him as my physio, I'd have, I'd have had such a better opportunity and a better chance of getting fit just because that they invested in someone that had the qualifications. Roy Bailey was a, is a lovely man and a fantastic uh, head tennis player. But in terms of physiotherapist, he was very, very limited. And, and how did that make you feel then, then, Paul? You described a number of that kind of from being on the verge of an England World Cup squad to drawing the raffle uh, in Suite 13 in the north back of the North Stand. How did that make you feel and what yeah, impact did that have on you personal? Well, it's demoralising really because, you know, um, you kind of being referred to as a, as a knee rather than as a, as a, as a person. You know, and, and at the same time, you feel like, well, you, your loss of identity means, well, who am I? If I'm not a professional footballer, who am I? What am I? What What is my value? What What's my worth? 
and and that's basically how you're made to feel. You're made to feel that you don't have a purpose, that you've uh, that you're you are most discarded, and um, and and people don't know what to say to you. You know, I'd rather people say to me, you know, oh, uh, oh why are you like come and sit down, let's have a chat, how are things? What what are you doing these days? What are you up to? You know, what does your day look like? How can I help you? You know, obviously I'm limited, but what what do you need from me? Um, and it got to the stage where I'd ask the physios at Lillyshaw, you know, has the club been in touch to see how I'm doing? And nobody had been in touch. And there was players from Northampton Town and players from Wimbledon and players from all over and that were getting fit calls from their, their staff. And, and I wasn't get, even getting a call. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, even whilst I'm here, I'm made to feel like the forgotten man. And yet, blimey, six months ago, a year ago, I was I was ta- I was offered a five-year contract, and I was the next potential England captain. And it's those things as a young person you don't know how to deal with. You you um you internalise all those feelings, all those emotions, and it leaves you in a really really bad place, a bitter place, and you don't know where to go and and how to turn from from that from that situation. It's it's really really unpleasant. And where did you turn, Lakey, then? Because obviously you, you did eventually end up on antidepressants uh, to help you through yeah. what was clearly a difficult time. So where, where did you turn? Eventually I broke down with the um, uh, the club doctor and it was basically, a, I used to walk at nights when I was back at City because I was so low and I couldn't sleep. I used to just walk at night, so like half, ten, eleven o'clock at night, I'd just put, put my hoodie up and just go for a walk and I'd walk for hours. And it was one time that I was literally over a, um, a motorway bridge in Cheadle. And it, unbeknownst to me, it was a suicide hotspot. And I was just stood there watching the wheels go by of of traffic. And, you know, I, I was everywhere and nowhere. And the police came, drove past. I noticed them. And then within two minutes, they come back again. And two policemen got either side of me saying, are you OK? And it suddenly dawned on what they were thinking I was about to do or was contemplating doing, which I didn't get to that place. Uh, but I was I was really, really low and I was severely depressed. And it was the following day I managed to pluck up, pluck up the courage to go and speak to the club doctor. I went to his practice in um, in, in Hardwick and I broke down, told him everything. And that's when I got the help um, that, I, that I needed. And, and um, without actually speaking up, speaking to somebody, I don't know what would have done, to be honest with you. And talking about mental health... Is kind of seen, or on the tie was seen as a sign of weakness, wasn't it? For footballers, they, they were kind of yeah. it wasn't the done thing, was it? It was a bit too macho for that. Mm, yeah, it was, it was, and 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 um, you know, people would ask you uh, how you were and didn't even wait to hear you answer. So you know, it was that kind of environment where you were, you were just had to just to bite your lip and just sort of nod and smile. And I used to use up all my energy just to to be in the moment, to be at the club, and as soon as I got home. The, the the effort just to be around the place was so so difficult. I was you know uh, in a really really bad place, and and I would literally come home in my suit and fall asleep, and I wake up at say three four in the morning sometimes. I'd just be absolutely shattered just to be there because I had to be there because you had to be there on a match day, and even those things weren't taken into consideration. You think you need to go into that like you know you're not feeling too so good or you know you it's difficult when you're not able to play and you've been out for like sixteen months. And you've got no sign of your, your career starting again. You've got, got to come and watch the team, you know, especially when the team weren't playing particularly well. And um, you know, it was it was tortuous. And even every start of every season, having to do the team picture, I used to dread that. And that's where the title of the book came from. I'm not really here because I had a picture taken for the, the team picture, 
and it was the third season where I'd not kicked a ball and I didn't I was nowhere near getting back fit. My knee had broke down again six months previously and, and I was uh, you know, stood there, everyone was laughing and joking, talking about the holidays, talking about the pre season and I was just thinking about what time do I leave to get back to the show. That was where my head was at. So the the cameraman said, Excuse me, Mr Leg, are, are you with us? And that's when I thought to myself, actually, I'm I'm anywhere else. I I'm not really here. And and I, you know, we use it as because it's a city song, but the truth behind it was that was the reason why the book was called what it was called. And apart from seeing the doctor and breaking down with the doctor and, and getting some medication, what what what, are, what other help did you get at the time, Lakey? Well, it was a regular. I was able to see um, a consultant on a regular basis. Um, the, the tablets weren't great to begin with, but something that you get used to, and, and they become, a, you know, a, 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 the norm for you. And then slowly, you, you start to be um, just given some advice around, you know, what what you're able to achieve, and well, what are your your values, and and and, and what 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 would you like to do? What, what would you like to do next? Where would you like to go? And and um, and it was the, the medication and the and the, the conversations with the medical staff, the, the club doctor at the time, and um, a psychologist that I was seeing just gave me the um, the impetus to think. Well, okay, I need to start again. I need to get on with my life. You know, it doesn't stop here. It can start here if you if you want it to. And that's when I put up the courage to uh, to enrol on a um, on different courses to get me back into education. Did an A level at night school. And then I went on to um, my chartered degree course at Salford University with the, through the PFA. So that was my road back, and it, it just gave me a sense of purpose, and it, it made me realise that um, there is there is something out there for you if you just um, prepare to uh, to get on with it. And I also realised that there's, there's millions of people that have to get on with it and have to do jobs, and often doing jobs that don't particularly want to do just to earn some money to to put food on the table, so to speak. So I had to just make, make the reality check that. Um, Life has to go on, and I know different from anybody else. Your career ended in in '96, and of course, you, you went on to be, ironically, a physio yourself. And 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 I think I'm right in saying you actually then became a confidant to players who couldn't go to the manager. I think you had some experiences of these macho footballers who can't talk about mental health or feel they couldn't actually coming to you. That's right. That's right. And and it, one of those all manner of things. I was I was basically that when you're the physiotherapist, you do get to hear a lot. And and if you work in a certain way, you you, you can build rapport and trust with people. And then they'll start to confide in you. And I had everything from supporting players with gambling uh, challenges, and I'd signpost them to to get some support for the PFA, or there were players that would be breaking down that uh, the marriages were falling apart, or they had an addiction to something else, or they basically just lost, lost the confidence, weren't playing well. Um, and also players that had long-term injury, I was able to support them and know when to, to turn up the heat and when to turn it down and when to give them some space and when to challenge them and, you know, always checking in with them and making sure they were okay. And even for the player that was, you know, 14th man in the um, in the U team who would, you know, didn't want to have, you know, much of an opportunity to play much and, and wasn't regarded as being particularly special. Didn't make a difference when I was working with the first team players over that individual, because that was someone's son. That was the player that I was, you know, many years ago. So my thought was, well, let's support as many people as I can, and and offer them the advice that I wasn't given, and knowing full well that there's insurance available for all players, and the PFA will support players as well. So I was able to make sure I've got second opinions for players who had long-term injuries and bad injuries. 
I was able to get them support for their addictions. I was able to get them counselling if they wanted to. But they also recognised that there was someone that would that would listen to them, would properly listen to them, and not listen to respond, but listen to understand. And that was where I felt that my strengths grew. Um, so uh, I, I found that uh, I found uh, a place uh, where I was of value, uh, and uh, I enjoyed that period of time. And but your book has definitely helped bring that whole issue to prominence. I mean, can you re- you must be able to recognise the difference between the time you were playing and and the time you got your injury and you went through that difficult time to what's now set up for players. I mean, there's there's a, there's a an enormous difference, surely, isn't there now? There's or, or is there still not enough? In oh place, yeah, it's huge. Say? No, yeah, it's huge now. I mean, for any player, the conference, conference north doesn't matter. There is support now, for, and and it, it's it's ever present. People are talking about it. People aren't afraid to to stand up, and and people can have um, mental health issues and can have uh, stresses and anxieties and still perform at a very high level. It's all about seeking that support and speaking about it, and even just hearing yourself say the words out loud can be enough because you've not spoken those words to anybody ever. You know, and that can be huge relief that you've just normalised it because it is normal. You know, people have challenges all the time. People have, have got different stresses, different pressures, you know, a, alongside difficulties in work with relationships. They may have a bereavement in the family. They, they may have an illness or an injury or they may have worries about the children. I mean, that's normal, you know, but to, to, to say that I can cope with it, I can cope with it, it comes a point where you're not able to cope and that's when you're in a really, really bad place. And then you're not able to support the people that you love and that care for you. And they would care for you if only they knew that you were, you were feeling these things. So, yeah, it's, um, it's really, really well managed across the football today. It's spoken about. People are open. There may be one or two cultures that still find it difficult, I would imagine, maybe overseas. You know, players that come into this country, maybe from Africa or from sort of Spain, Portugal, that are very uh, confident and back themselves and put their chests out. I don't know what that, uh, that culture, whether they're able to open up, but certainly... Um, whether we speak about it, speak to academy players, speak to, back, speak to all the staff, everyone has got uh, the support that they, that they would need or they've got the signpost to be able to forward them on to, to somebody who can help. So it, it's, a, it's night and day difference in what it was like when I, when I had my, my, uh, my challenges. Uh, and I've realised I've obviously got your two serious injuries mixed up as well, because of course the Dr. Luft issue, was, of course, was back in March '89, of course, when you were uh, when you were playing Leicester. So apologies for that. That's my uh, my confusion. That's okay. the, 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 the knee injury. Just to remind people, the knee injury was yeah. We weren't sure at the time, but of course there was that situation against Leicester in March '89, where Dr. Luft mm-hmm. was in the main stand with uh, with Mr. Swales and uh, talk mm-hmm. us through. I mean. I'm, just talk us through that particular very harrowing and difficult situation as well. Different situation, of course, but but equally very dangerous. Well, yeah, just uh, I mean, I, I was the kind of player, but like most of the players I felt in those days, uh, you know, if there was a ball there to be won, you'd go for it. I, mean, I never pulled out of any challenge ever. And because, well, partly was because if you pulled out of the challenge, you're likely to get injured or, you know, you're going to certainly come worse off. And there was a ball there to be won. There was a, the ball got drawn to the edge of the box. I've gone to head the ball. Um, I've headed the ball. Uh, and and the, the player marking me um, from Leicester City, he, he headbutted me in, right in my temple. 
and um, I landed on, uh, on the side of my head and I whacked my head at the same time and all those things meant that uh, um, I swallowed my tongue and uh, went into convulsions and uh, like I say, Dr. Luff was up in the stand. He had to try and get down as fast as he could and he, you know, I don't think fitness was a strong point for Dr. Luff. So <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, he had to get a rocket up, up a certain orifice to get downstairs in time to see me. But it was Roy Bailey who came out onto the pitch and um, he, apparently, he, he apparently used some scissors to, to, to help to get my, uh, my tongue to relax. But I think, as we all know, it's difficult in that situation where you do panic because, you know, all eyes are on you. But again, just tilting the head back and just keeping it there, you know, the, the tongue will eventually relax and it will fall forward. But obviously, whatever he did, that's the reason why, you know, I've always got a soft spot for Roy Bailey. And um, um, I could have taken the club to task over the way that I was treated, certainly from a medical perspective. But, you know, it was either take the club to task or have a testimonial. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd rather have left City, you know, in a, a better light, although in hindsight, I would have earned a lot more money suing the club. Um, but I just felt that, you know, I'd, life has to go on and I didn't want to go down that road and it, it'd be a bitter taste and I'd, I'd end up falling out of love with the club that I that I adored as a boy. So um, I've managed to keep my allegiances or keep being the fan fanboy that I was before I played. And... Um, you know, life hasn't turned out too bad. So, uh, you know, I've uh, I've got a lot to be grateful for. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, Check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. And you say in your book, uh, you have a photograph, I think, with, with a very heavy knee brace sort of being applauded by both Manchester sides. And you say that you find it extremely difficult to look at that photograph from, from October 97. Just, just help us understand a bit more about that, Licky. Well, yeah, it's just obviously when you, when you, um, you want to have left a legacy where in your own eyes that you you were you were able to achieve what you wanted to achieve and and um you know i i um i always had it in my heart of hearts that one day i'd have been you know the most capped england player on the on the board on the scroll uh that was previously at um at main road that was going to be at the etihad i i that that was my that was my next goal to to be that and to and to have that sort of memory of of um of what I could achieve and what what I would have achieved, um, whereas instead, you know, it, the um, the legacy that I felt I left at that particular time was just purely and simply as somebody that had a a lot of injury problems that was respected by both by both managers and both teams, but ultimately I was I was remembered for my, you know, my um, my ills and my woes and my uh, my my physical problems 
rather than for the uh, the talent that I believed I had. Had so you know it was um, it was it was it was a double edged sword because I was also you know the fact that I had so many people come out to to sort to mark my testimonial and the fact that Sir Alex Ferguson allowed us to play the following day after a first team match was testament to to the man that I believe he is. You recognise the challenges that I had and what I've had to go through, and um, I've got a lot of admiration for the way that he dealt with it and how he supported me, as did the club at the time. You know, so um, the memories are, are kind of uh, a bittersweet, if you can say it like that. Of course, and of course, le- since leaving City, we've talked briefly about the the physio job. Um, we've talked obviously about your time at the Premier League, but you also were an ambassador for football in the community as well, of course, for a period of time as well, weren't you? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I had a role at um, City in the community, so um, I have left a legacy. I started off. It was my idea to start the uh, the, the Sky Blue Santa Stroll and uh, and the um, the twenty four hour site for the Valladrome, and uh, I had the challenge to raise money for City in the community, which I did do. I supported City in the community for uh, quite a few seasons, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Got some fabulous staff working City in the community, some really, really talented individuals, and the work that City do for the community, you know, is 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 um, is far reaching, and it goes obviously uh, worldwide these days. Uh, that department has grown immeasurably since the days that I was there. But uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being part of it. It was a pleasure to work alongside Gary Cook. Um, who was very supportive and uh, he was um, certainly uh, um, uh, he had great ideas about where City could go and um, you know he certainly brought a real personality and a, and a genuineness to the environment and so myself Alex Williams worked together we enjoyed working together Alex is a great guy as I'm sure everyone knows um, but then eventually it was whilst I was working for Stevens I got headhunted to go and work for the Premier League and uh, the only way that I would accept it if they were to allow me to work with Manchester City, which they did do. And uh, I've been working in the city now for the last nine years. And um, it's been a real honour to see, you know, the players that have come and gone, but seeing Phil Foden's, uh, you know, mercurial rise from him being a, you know, a top, literally, a, you know, a 12-year-old to where he is now, seeing him just rise through the ranks and just, uh, you know, to be that player is, is something which... You know, as Noel Gallagher once said about me, it's like having one in your own on the pitch. And uh, and so I've seen all those things, you know. So I've been, uh, as they say, man and boy at City. And, and I'm still connected with the club now. I still work for local radio, doing the commentary. And, um, you know, I, I, I really enjoy uh, being able to still be a part of it or, or be in such a, a really, really small way these days. Well, you've very nicely brought us round to sort of current day. So it's a couple of final questions before we do our famous quick fire round at the end, Lakey. But just you okay. mentioned you mentioned uh, young Foden, and I'm just wondering, as someone who came through the academy with a lot a lot of other Man City lads, just do you think the likes of Foden, Harwood, Bellis, and Doyle are they going to match that same feat? And, and, and sort of as a supplementary question, sort of what advice would you be giving those youngsters, youngsters to maximise their chances of success today? Well, I certainly think that, I mean, Phil, Phil Folding, you can see as being a, a, someone that will be as important to City as the likes of David Silva have been and, and currently are. And I would put that responsibility on his shoulders because he needs it, because he is one of the most talented players um, that this country has seen. 
and we've seen, you know, we've only seen a glimpse of what what, what Phil is going to be able to do. So God willing, he stays fit and he'll be that player. Um, Turner Howard Bellis has uh, obviously got loads of potential. Uh, he needs more men's football, as does Tommy Doyle. Um, again, you, you can never say with with, with uh, the players that uh, are on the periphery because we've seen players do that and it's not materialised. And I wouldn't want to, to set those guys up for a fall, but they're very talented. They've got the potential, sure. Um, and they can certainly, you know, take a leaf out of Phil Foden's book and, and, and look at what he's done and how he's gone about it. But certainly for those guys, they might need a bit of time away on loan before they come back. Um, but who knows? Who knows what's around the corner? But they've certainly got potential. But what I would say to them is just to, to make sure that you recognise the value every day. You know, of, of being genuine, being true to yourself, and and backing yourself. You know, because you're around, you know, world class footballers who can help you to raise your game. You just got to not become intimidated, and with that, you get used to the environment. It becomes second nature to you, and you can really look look at ways to thrive. But certainly, to back yourself, take the opportunity, and um, and that say just believe in yourself. That, that that's the most important thing for me. And, and finally, as a player who came through in an era where creative midfield players were looked upon as a bit of a luxury, do you think you'd be a different type of player if you came through now? Well, certainly with um, with Pat Guardiola, yeah, it would be a, oh, it would be a pleasure, and I'd, I would play in any position. I'd probably even go in goal if you asked me to. But um, certainly, um, in terms of the, the, the different player, that's the, that's the thing, is it? Because I, I, I felt I was a I was a, a footballing footballer. If that makes sense, that I would have I've been able to play in a team alongside the likes of um, Vincent Company back in the day, and and, um, and obviously Kevin De Bruyne, David Silva, et al. Uh, because I was able to to make that pass and I was able to sort of see things. I'll be able to see the pitch in a different way. And I think that's what Pep does. It makes you appreciate, you know, the areas of the pitch, the opportunities within those areas, what you need to do in possession, out position, just to give you, you know, a lot more, a lot, lot more opportunity and, and, um, and to, to basically, you know, be a risk, risk taker. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, I enjoy bringing the ball out from the back and trying to play forward and, and I think all those things combined, that would have been an absolute joy to go in every day to training with someone like Pep Guardiola. And that's something else that these young players, you know, will hopefully um, not take for granted because, you know, everything has to normalise, but just to, to, to recognise the opportunity and to take it with both hands. Amazing. Uh, Lakey, thank you so much. Are you ready for the quick fire round before you go? I am. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Paul Lake, you haven't got long to think about these. Whatever comes into your head first, you've got uh, an either all round coming up. Marmite, love it or hate it? Hate it. Sky blue or red and black stripes? Sky blue. Bell or De Bruyne? Bell are who, sorry? De Bruyne. Um, oh, you swine, De Bruyne. <laughs> Oof, really? Uh, midfield or centre back? Centre-back. Frizzell or Kendall? Kendall. Main Road or the Etihad Stadium? Main Road. Christmas or your birthday? Christmas. Ski slopes or the beach? The beach. A pint of beer or a glass of wine? Glass of wine. 
Aguero's goal or Dickoff's goal? Aguero's goal. <laughs> Paul Lake, it's been a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul, for your time, for your honesty, your candid response. It's been really brilliant having you on the Man City show. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening. I will talk to you very soon. Thanks, Clive. Thank you, mate. Wasn't that a great podcast? Now, if you've got 90 seconds spare in your day, come and listen to ours. It's called What Has He Said Now? and is available wherever you got this podcast. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit Playback Media. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.